Good morning, church. It is great to be with you. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, you just saw this guy, but I have a big announcement on this guy. I'll let, I'll let you all just kind of like get a moment to guess where you think this is going because it's more fun that way. Am I getting fired? <laughs> In front of everybody, yeah. I thought it was the most loving way to do it. Just a lot of encouragement while we did it. Here's your performance review now. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, when I came about six months ago, uh, you know, one of the needs that I recognized is that uh, we have a, a different campus set up on our different campuses. So if you've only ever been to Happy Valley, you may not know we have two other campuses in Sandy and Vancouver. Each of those campuses have a campus pastor that is, you know, the frontline shepherd of that campus uh, to, to, you know, address uh, that area uh, of ministry need. Uh, and we haven't had that role here. And so we've been working on it. We've been talking about it. We've been asked the question, who would be the right person? And so I am thrilled to announce to you today, we have a brand new Happy Valley campus pastor in Aaron Walton. You got, a, you got a partial standing ovation on that. That was part, they, they wanted to, but then they that stopped. That was either your mom or your wife, I'm not sure. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, we are so thrilled. If you know Aaron, you know this guy has such a shepherd's heart, uh, loves people, just has an incredible ability uh, to love on people. You guys are going to be so fortunate and blessed uh, just to have more interactions with him. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. He's going to be in the lobby after the service. Um, if you know him and you're like, oh, I see Aaron all the time, go congratulate him. Say, hey, we are so pumped, excited to partner with you. If you've never met him before, this is a great weekend to go introduce yourself, give him a chance to get to know you. Uh, and this is going to allow us as a church uh, to just be a way more uh, strategic and effective in the way that we do ministry on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you would, one more time, please help me congratulate our new campus pastor. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. All right. Now, I want to ask you a serious question. Have you ever attempted to do something and it didn't go according to plan? You ever, like, seen something online? And you thought, I could do that. And you, you go and you attempt to recreate whatever it is that you saw and it doesn't quite go the way that you had envisioned it going in your mind. Uh, I found a website this week called PinterestFail.com. <laughs> if you're looking for a great way to, to waste a number of hours of your week, I would, I would recommend this. The slogan of the website, uh, I, I love this, where good intentions go to die. Love that. Love everything about that. Um, and, and it shows to me, it illustrates how often we see something, we're like, piece of cake, I'll do that. And it doesn't always turn out the way. Like, let me give you a few examples that I really enjoyed. Uh, sometimes, like, with decorations. So you might see a decoration. This is like a, a, I don't even know what this technically is called, but it's a cool yarn ball thing that you hang in your house, and it's artistic or whatever. Uh, and, and so you might go, oh, piece of cake, it's just yarn. I mean, who couldn't make that? Uh, and so someone attempted it, and this is what their final product looked like. 
which looks more like an abused mop to me than anything else, but whatever. Or, or maybe it's not building something. Maybe, maybe you see a photo online, a cute photo like this, and you're going, oh, how easy would that be? We have a baby. We have two of us. Let's just kiss the baby, get a photo, piece of cake, right? And then your photo ends up looking like this. Not quite the same, but, you know. or, or my favorite, you know, something real simple. Let's take a beloved children's character uh, and, and let's, let's make an edible version of it. Like, I don't know, Elmo. Let's, let's make an Elmo cake. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? How cute is that, right? You don't know. Maybe it's great, right? And then you turn it out and you get this version of Elmo. That thing will haunt your dreams tonight. I, uh, I can assure you of that. Well, today we're continuing our series called Redeeming Pleasure. If you've got your journal, go ahead and get that out. We are in week three. I invite you to get, get uh, a pen out, get uh, your journal out, go to week three, write down some of these notes as we go through it today. If not, uh, get a piece of paper or a note app on your phone and, and uh, encourage you to write down what, what you sense God uh, impressing upon you today as we dis- discover this together. Uh, also, if you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 10. And so I encourage you each and every week, bring your Bible with you. If you are regular with us, uh, we use them every week. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. If you've got a physical Bible with you, go ahead and get that out. Get your spot there. We'll be there in just a moment. If you've got a Bible app on a phone uh, or a device, you can go ahead and get that out and scroll to Mark 10 and you'll be ready in just a moment. Well, we've been uh, in this series, Redeeming Pleasure. It's our third week. And, and each of these weeks, we've been uh, going through this, this simple premise uh, that, that really we've been considering. And here's the premise. By pursuing pleasure on God's terms, we experience more of it. Okay, so if you've been with us, you, you understand, you've heard this. By, ex- by experiencing pleasure on God's terms, we experience more of it. Now here's my question for us today. What if you're going, yeah, that's great, but I haven't done that. I haven't pursued pleasure on God's terms. W- w- what does that mean for me now? What if you look at your life and you go, my life feels like a Pinterest fail. Like that is my life with God. I see the standard of what God wants from me, but I just can't seem to actually ever get there. Uh, What what do we do then? Does God have a plan B? Like, does does God have a way of meeting us there when our life doesn't work out the way we want it? Or or maybe we we know this is what God has set up, but, but man, I have fallen so far short of that. For example, what if you didn't save sex for marriage? And you read about it and you go, oh, I wonder what would have happened if I would have done that. What if you got married and you did your best at it, but you, you now find yourself in a divorce and now you're a divorced person? What, what then? What if your spending led to uh, bankruptcy? You're going, that, that didn't play out the way I thought. What if you pursued certain pleasures like alcohol to excess and you have the, 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 the negative fallout of that? What if you look at your life and you go, I've, I've just messed up. Like, I I didn't intend on that. I thought it was going to be something else, and it hasn't played out that way. Is God done with you? Are are you outside of what God wants to do now as we talk about this design for our life? Or or is there a way that God could meet us in the midst of that? 
Well, each week we've been talking about what I call the pleasure cycle uh, that is found uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, you have the story of Adam and Eve. And we, we have looked at this last few weeks. And they pursue pleasure on their terms to eat the fruit that God had said, do not eat from this tree. So they experience that pleasure. But then they immediately have consequences of that. Because there's always consequences whenever you go away from the design. And so they realize we're naked, we're, we're deficient, we're broken, something is wrong. Which leads them to hide from God in the garden and they experience shame. And this cycle that you see in the opening pages of Scripture is the same cycle we see today. Which is why we, we are hesitant to talk about pleasure because we associate pleasure with shame. And here's my question. If you look at this and you go, I've certainly done step one. I have pursued pleasure on my terms. And, and now as you've, as, you, as you've unpacked it in this series with us, you're going, that has been me. Here's the question I want to wrestle with today. If you have done this, does that mean that your only outcome is shame? Does it mean that's all that is in store for you is just a lifetime of shame if you have pursued pleasure on your terms? And you're going, man, I, I wish I would have done this differently, but I didn't. I, I did the same thing Adam and Eve did. So, so am I just destined to a life of shame. That's what we're going to look at today. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 2. And we're going to look at a very practical example uh, that Jesus is going to teach through. And it's an example that we can learn from today as well. And it's, it's a very practical thing. And, and yet there's incredible, profound wisdom in the way that Jesus navigates this issue. So here's, here's what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking. Okay, so before we get there, understand the motive here. You have religious leaders coming to Jesus to test him. Now, sometimes when we ask questions, we can hide behind our questions. Oh, I just want to learn more. I want to understand better. And yet we can have these very pointed leading questions that are not questions designed for, for us to grow and us to be challenged and us to learn. It's for us to make the other person look stupid or to trap the other person in their answer. This is one of those situations. They are not coming to Jesus to go, hey, Jesus, we really think you could teach us something. You could show us something here. No, they're trying to trap him in a question that is a lose-lose question. Here's their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Jesus is, is going to be trapped in this because if he says yes, yeah, it's okay to do that. They can go back to the Old Testament and go, so you're going against all that God had designed? You don't believe in that? You're contradicting all of that teaching of the Old Testament? He'd be trapped there. He'd have negative reaction. If Jesus says, no, it's not lawful, then they can look around and go, what about all these people who have experienced divorce? Your, your, you know, your new understanding of God doesn't apply to them. It's not good news for them. So either way, they know this is going to backfire on Jesus. Whatever he says, however he answers this, it's going to play out negatively for him. And so they set up this test question. Verse 3, you get to Jesus' response. What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. Now, if you like to notate your Bible, you like to mark things up, uh, circle, highlight, underline the word command in verse 3. It's a significant word, and you'll see why in just a moment. Jesus asked the question, what did Moses command you? What did he teach you? What was the standard that he set out for you? Then notice the wording of the way they reply. Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now again, if you like to notate, circle, underline, highlight the word permitted. What you realize there is that they're answering a question Jesus didn't ask and they're not answering the question he did ask them. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They don't answer that question. They say, well, Moses 
permitted us to do this. Jesus didn't ask that. He's like, what's, what's the command? And then Jesus elaborates on this. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, what's amazing about this is not only the wisdom of what Jesus says here, but they don't trap Jesus. So they're thinking, we got him now, and then they walk away going, oh, that was a, that was a pretty good answer. I mean, he, he, he really, he thought that one through, you know. And it's like, if you think you're going to outwit Jesus, you have the wrong understanding of Jesus. He's not just a, a, a pretty good, you know, teacher. The guy is brilliant. It's God in the flesh. You're not going to outsmart him. And so Jesus sees right through this trap, and he's like, all right, how about this? But Jesus' answer illustrates for us an incredible, uh, profound truth that we need to understand today. There's two things. One, notice that there is a design. Jesus goes right back to the story that we have been talking about this whole series. He goes back to Genesis 3. He goes back to Adam and Eve in the beginning. You know, there was male and female. This is how God designed it. So Jesus' answer to it is like, well, what's the design? Let's go back to the design. But then notice that he also talks about how God makes adjustments. He says, well, Moses permitted that because your hearts were hard. That God had, had figured out a way to navigate your brokenness, your, your, your inability to follow the design. And what we see here is a helpful way in, in figuring out how God meets us today. I would say it like this. God meets you where you are and invites you closer to his design. Now, you can, you can you know, be misled on, on either side of this equation if you don't have both aspects of this. Sometimes you go, well, God won't meet me where I am. I have to go to him. And every world religion will tell you the steps you have to take to get to God. Christianity will tell you there's nothing you can do, but good news, God came to you. So it begins by understanding, I don't have to get to God. God has come to me where I am now, where you are in this moment. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we'll say things like, well, I'm going to come back to church once I get my, my life kind of together. What? You're going to come back to church once everything's great? It's a misunderstanding of where God meets us. God doesn't meet us once you get everything together, once you read your Bible every day, once you, you know, have prayer time every day. That's not when God decides to meet you. He meets you where you are. But he's going to invite you closer to his design. We can also err in thinking, hey, God meets me where I am, and he's totally content to leave me that way. He's fine with me. He's fine with my lifestyle. He's fine with my decisions. He doesn't want anything else from me. What you realize is that, no, God will meet you where you are, but he's going to move you. He's going to nudge you. He's going to prompt you. He's going to invite you always closer to his design. But he will use wherever you are as a starting point. And we all have different starting points in this room. Some of you today, you're, you're exploring Jesus. You, you don't know what you think about him yet. You wouldn't call him your Lord and Savior. That's awesome. We're glad you're here. That's your starting point right now. Jesus will meet you there. Some of you might go, I've been a Christian all my life. I have studied these ideas for decades, and, and this is who I am. And great, God will meet you there. That, that wherever you are, God will meet you. And he'll continue to walk this road with you no matter the decisions you make. When Adam and Eve uh, decide to, to pursue pleasure on their terms, they're expelled from the garden. But God doesn't leave them. God doesn't say, well, you blew it. Hope you can find another God who will take you in. Right? That's not his view. He's like, well, you, you messed up. 
you didn't trust me, and now this is the reality. These are the natural consequences of that decision. But he continues to walk with them for the rest of their lives because that is what God does. See, I believe in something that theologians call God's accommodating will. That God meets us in our sin and he accommodates to where we are in our brokenness in order to ultimately get us where he wants us to go. Now, this does not change the design that God had originally. Just because God will accommodate to you doesn't mean that God says, well, forget the design. It never really mattered anyway. It just means that God acknowledges uh, that, that maybe we have some issues. And God's not going to give up hope on you. God's not going to go, well, you're just, you're just too far gone. Now, you might be going, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to understand what is this, how does this apply. Well, let's, let's consider a real-life illustration uh, that, that would be very similar to the example that Jesus just taught through. Imagine that you have a friend that comes to you, and, and this friend has, has been divorced. They had a failed marriage, and now they come to you and say, hey, uh, I'm about to get married. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to do things God's way this time. And here's the question your friend asks you. Do you think God could bless my second marriage? What would you say? Now, it's a little tricky. Most of us would probably say, yeah, I, I think God could, but think this through. Does that mean that God's design was for that person to get a divorce? That that was God's intent, that was God's, you know, set up for them, that they would get that? I, I would say absolutely not. Does it mean that God's design of marriage is broken, it's flawed, it never actually worked in the first place? I, I would say no, it doesn't. It means that they have gone away from the design, but that God will meet them there and bring them closer to his design from this point on. And God does that for me. He does it for you. He does it for all of us. He meets us in our sin, and he invites us closer to his design. Now, I've met a number of people that struggle with this idea, and they struggle with it internally. And they say things like this, not me, I've done too much. And this might be you today. You're going, that sounds great, but you don't know my story, Jeremy. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. Not me, I've done too much. Now, here's the reality. This might sound very noble to you. And you're going, oh, yeah, this, this is my position. Here's the truth. This is pride in reverse. What you're saying is that your sin, your story is so great. You are the exception to God's redeeming power. That God could not be sovereign enough, powerful enough to, to undo what you have done. It's an incredibly arrogant position. And yet many of us hide behind this. Well, there's no way. I can't follow him. I couldn't really submit my life to him because of where I've done, because of where I've been. And God says, no, you haven't done too much. I, I, I could meet you there. You're, you're not done yet. Now, I've also met Christians who struggle with this, not for themselves, but they struggle with this for other people. And, and that goes something like this. Not them, they've done too much. See the difference? Not, not them, and, and this could be a person in your life, that, that, that person to you. It could be a group of people. It could be a whole stereotype or a prejudice of people that you have and go, not them, they've done too much. God, you can't possibly be good enough to meet them in their sin. It doesn't work for them. And here's what you have to understand. If you, if you believe that statement about anybody, if, the, if there's any them that comes to your mind, that reflects more on you than it does on God. Our desire should be that God would forgive everyone and that everyone would submit themselves to that forgiveness and to that redemption. Now, it doesn't change the interpersonal dynamics of that. It doesn't mean you restore you know, all that was. But from a God position, we should want everyone 
to experience the forgiveness and, 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 you know, and the restoration of God. But here's the reality. We begin to shape God into our own image. If God hates all the people that you hate, you know you've created God in your own image. If, God, if you're going, yeah, not them, and, and God, God's with me on that one. I mean, he agrees, not them. No, he, he doesn't. That just reveals your heart. And, and so what you realize, we start to create God in our image based on the people that we're uncomfortable with or we don't understand or we don't like. And then we just assume, God, surely you can't meet them in that sin, whatever that sin is. And, and again, play this through. Put some real life, you know, examples into that and, and run it through your emotions. How does that make you feel if God were to meet this group and their sin, this group and their sin, this group? And you start going, oh, not, not them. But consider what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter verse, or chapter 3, verse 9. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. And said he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You want to know the heart of God? It's a patient heart of a father. He's going, I want everyone to understand what I'm offering them. I want everyone to submit their life to this. I want everyone to experience what I have for them. And if we don't want that as well, we are distancing ourselves from the heart of God. We are, we are removing ourselves from what God wants to do around us. Now let me switch gears for a second. We live in a world uh, where we get very used to not getting what we want. Now we learn this as kids, and if you have kids, you, you start to teach this to your kids. Well, I don't want it to happen like that. That's not fair. Well, guess what, kids? Life's not fair. Deal with it. And we teach this to our kids, and you, you know, do your best to explain to them, you don't always get what you want. Now, as adults, do we figure this out? Do we, do we learn this lesson? No, we just whine differently, right? We, we still don't like it when we don't get what we want, and we just complain about it in different ways. Um, I came across a hilarious example of it this week. I was reading in a magazine, and I came across an example that hits very close to home for all of us. Here, here's the example that I found in, in a newspaper. It said, it's a bad week for Oregonians, many of whom are not happy about a new law that allows motorists to pump their own gas for the first time in state history. Then here's a quote. I refuse to pump my own gas, one resident wrote in an online poll. I had to do it once while visiting my brother in California, and I almost died. <laughs> what kind of people do you think we are? We're going to pump our own gas. Look. Let me speak to you as your pastor here, okay? <laughs> I have decades of experience of pumping my own gas. Do you know that like every other state does this, okay? I have decades of experience of this. You will not die. I promise you, all right? Just don't use the green diesel handle if you don't have a diesel. That's the only thing you need to know. Everything else, you're going to be fine. And yet I love this expression. I almost died. It's like this is an adult saying this. And if you go to our church and this is you, I'm so sorry that I have singled you out. But let's, let's figure this out, right? Like we, we don't get what we want and we act like little kids. I didn't get it. I didn't want it. And I'm mad about that. Now, let me ask you a theological question. Does God get what he wants? Now, we know we don't. We're used to it. We still don't like it. We still complain about it. But does God get what he wants? Now, I don't know what your answer to that question would be. I, I, I would answer it this way. In, in, a, in a large holistic sense, the answer is yes. God's ultimately going to get what he wants. But in a very practical, real-life sense, the answer is no. God doesn't get what he wants. 
In fact, God probably doesn't get what he wants more than he gets what he wants. Now that might, you know, really unsettle you. Like, there's no way that could be true of God. Think about every single time you sin. Every single time you decide you're not going to trust God, you're going to trust you. That you know better. You know the knowledge of good and evil better than God knows the knowledge of good and evil. Every single time you sin, God goes, well, I don't, I don't get what I want. I d- didn't want that for you. And last week we talked about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's concession to give you what you want, even though he knows it's going to harm you. And so God all the time is used to not getting what he wants. Now I want to read to you uh, what I consider to be the saddest passage in all of the Bible. This is not, the Bible doesn't say it's the saddest passage. This is my view of this. Uh, I want to read to you this passage. I want you to Consider this passage in view of that question, does God get what he wants? This comes from John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It's about Jesus. It says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And normally we think about Jesus coming from our point of view, of what it means for us. And that's certainly a profound way of understanding it. But John here frames it from the other point of view, from the point of view of Jesus. What did it feel like for Jesus to come to his own creation? He had created all of us. He created all of this. It was all through him. He comes back and guess what? We hang him to a tree. We, we reject him. Well, we don't want anything that you've got. And we're, we're not going to accept this. What, what does that feel like from Jesus' point of view? Does God get what he wants? No. God wanted people to accept him, to understand what he was offering, and it, it didn't happen. And so God is very used to not getting what he wants. Now, why would God allow this? Why would God allow his creation to treat him like this? But more importantly, what does this teach us about God? That God does allow his creation to treat him like this. Or more practically, what about this? Does God's plan only work when everyone perfectly obeys him? Does God have to get what he wants in order for this to work? Like, well, what happens with, with our mistakes? Do, do we derail God? I mean, I mean, have you ever thought this through? Like, what if God had a perfect design for your life and you blew it? Does now, does that derail what God is doing? How do we make sense out of this? Well, let me give you one of the best analogies I've ever heard. And I came across this years ago, and I, I love this analogy. It's a little complicated, so hang in there, okay? So imagine that there are three chess players... And each of these three chess players is about to play a chess match. And they're each explained to you how great of a chess player they are. And your job is to determine which one is the more impressive chess player. Okay, understand? So each can explain why they're the most impressive. You have to decide for yourself which one you think is the best chess player. All right, chess player number one. Here's his claim. Look, I can guarantee you that I'm going to win my chess match because I'm playing a computer. I built the computer that I'm going to play, and I programmed the software that it's going to run to play me. Therefore, I can guarantee you I'm going to win my chess match. Okay? Chess player number one. Chess player number two. I can guarantee that I'm going to win my chess match, and I'm also playing a computer. But I'm not, I didn't build the computer. I'm playing the computer that he built, chess player number one, but I wrote my own software for, for it. Okay? So his computer, my software, and I can guarantee to you that I can win my chess match in, the, in those terms, okay? Chess player number two. Chess player number three says, here's the deal. I can guarantee that I'm going to win, and I'm not playing a computer. I'm playing against a person. I don't know what the person's going to do. I, I, I don't know, you know, all the things. I, I didn't control it. I didn't design it. 
Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, I'm such a good chess player. No matter what this person does, I can guarantee you that I will win. Now, assuming all three chess players win their, their chess match, which one of the three is the most impressive? I would suggest it's chess player number three. Because chess player number three can have the least amount of control and still guarantee the ends that he ultimately wants. I would suggest that's how God works. But here's the reality. Most of us assume that God works like chess player number one. God has to design everything. He's got to control everything. He's got to run everything. And that's the way it's all going to work. And so then you go, well, what happens in your life when you messed up? Was that God's design for you? No, God didn't want you to mess up. God didn't intend for you to mess up. So how do you make sense out of all of that? How, how do you process through the, the, the Pinterest fail moments? The reality is God's going, yeah, I'm, I gave you free will. I took my hands off creation and go, here's the design. Go and trust me. And not everyone does. And yet there's nothing you can do to ultimately derail God's redemptive power in your life. It's an incredible reality of God. See, oftentimes we go, well, this God is the biggest God because he's got the most control. I would suggest this is the smallest God of the three. Because he has to have all the control in order to ultimately get his ends accomplished. What I find in scripture is a God who legitimately gives us free will, takes his hands off and goes, I, I hope you trust me, but even if you don't, I can still work. I can still do incredible things in your life. Which is how you get verses like Romans 8, 28. It says it like this. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, things that God didn't cause, things that God didn't want to happen. But in all things, God can work for the good. This applies to things that you have done that God didn't want to happen. It also applies to things that have been done to you that you didn't want to have happen. God goes, look, I didn't want that either. But guess what? I can work in all things. In my understanding, that's chess player number three going, yeah, that's not what I designed, that's not what I wanted, but I can still work. And when you begin to understand this, you go, wow, so God could use my life? God, God, could, God could still meet me where I am? I'm, I'm not a lost cause, I'm not too far gone for God to show up? Let me ask you a practical question. When's the best time to plant a tree? Correct answer is 10 years ago. Right? Ten years ago. Uh, when's the next best time if you didn't plant it then? Today is the correct answer. Some of you are going, I wish I knew this ten years ago. I wish I knew this twenty years ago. I wish I would have trusted God differently back then. Well, guess what? You can't change that. And if you didn't trust him then, you didn't. You can't change that. But you have today. You have this moment right now to go, huh, what if I started trusting him now? What would he do now if I began to trust him? If I understood that my life is not too far gone, that, yeah, I might have missed his original design, but, but I can move back toward that design from this moment on. What would happen if I thought about that and I actually trusted him with that? I began the message showing you some Pinterest fails. I want to close by showing you the opposite. I came across a video of a, uh, an artist uh, who's a mom, and, and she does her art in a unique way. She has a two-year-old daughter. And she gives her daughter a blank piece of paper and a marker and says, all right, create something. And she lets her two-year-old daughter create whatever she creates. Then she takes that as her starting point and she puts her art to it. 
and you'd be amazed at how this turns out. I want to show you a quick little video that shows how the two-year-old starts it and then what this mom does with this art. Check this out. What would Jesus do with your life? What would this artist that could see things that you can't see? Uh, the first time I watched that video and I saw the starting point that the two-year-old had made, I literally thought, well, there ain't nothing coming from that one. You know, like, <laughs> that thing's done. Like, good luck. And then you watch this artist's work and you go, wow, I, I didn't see that. I didn't, I didn't see what she could see. I, I, I didn't know that that could be possible. And here's the reality, you might not see in your life what Jesus could do. That's fine. You don't have to see it. You don't have to be able to envision all the things that Jesus wants to do. You just have to trust him and say, Jesus, here's what I got. It's not much. Hasn't turned out the way I thought. I made some decisions that really played out differently. But I, I, I want to trust you with it. I, I, want, I want to see what your design would do with my life here. See, Satan would love nothing more then for you to walk out of here today ashamed and discouraged about where your story has gone. And just to keep you down and go, God will never use you. You'll never be welcome there. You'll never be one of them. He would love for you to conclude that. And Jesus would tell you he's not done yet. He's got incredible things in store for your life. If you'll just submit it to him and trust him and let him create his art out of what you've done. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we are in awe of your ability to bring art out of all situations. Even situations that we didn't want to happen and you didn't want to happen. And yet so many of us concluded that uh, we, must not, we must not be eligible to, to really have this kind of a life with you because of where we've been or, or how things have played out. Because of how we have failed in the past to live up to your design. And yet, God, would we experience this incredible truth today that you meet us where we are and you invite us forward with you to trust you that you can bring incredible beauty 
out of even the most painful parts of our life. God, we want to see that. We want to be a community of that that brings to you our brokenness and watches you transform it and you bring redemption to it. May we trust you from this moment on to bring your beautiful design into our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.